Hey everyone, and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode, we're going to be talking about anime episodes 162 through 164, which will be covering manga chapters 248 through 251. And yeah, everybody is in danger. The Straw Hats now have to fend off against two priests. Luffy and company have already been struggling against Satori, and now Chopper has to go up against Shura all by himself. Yikes. So the synopsis. So Chopper is in danger as he tries to protect the Mary and fend off the priest Shura and his string ordeal as he waits for Gonfall to respond to the whistle. While Luffy and Usopp have to find a way to defeat Satori without Sanji, all the while Nami, Zoro, and Robin make a startling discovery about the nature and the origins of the Upper Yard. So yeah, now on to the differences. There are again quite a few differences.、Um, we see. More of the beginning of the Chopper and Shura fight, as in the manga, it immediately cuts to where the mast is already on fire. So all that beginning part where Chopper is fighting Shura and then he gets like slammed against the mast and everything, that doesn't happen in the manga, as it already cuts to when the mast is already on fire. And then, kind of a running change that happens throughout all three episodes with extra scenes of Zoro, Nami, and Robin. Now I won't list them all, but the only two canon ones are really when Nami is up on the tree and she sees something in the distance through her binoculars, and then there's another short one where Zoro asks what she saw, and she just kind of tells them that they just need to see for themselves. And so those two scenes are the only two canon ones, and everything else where there's a couple of them where Nami is struggling to get from tree to tree and and whatnot, those are all added in. And then much of episodes 163, a lot of the scenes have been rearranged slightly. Like for example, the scene with the Shandians has been moved around, as well as the scene Nami finding the the whatever it is in the distance、uh, through her binoculars. Those have been moved around a little bit. And also, instead of finishing the Shura and, and Gonfall fight, the beginning of the Ball Dragon portion of the Satori fight begins kind of in between there. Whereas in the manga, the whole Shura and Gunfall fight finish, and then we move on to the Satori Ball Dragon portion. And then there's also a scene where Aisa tells Wiper about Satori's defeat. In the manga, this scene just kind of begins midway through, and she's already talking to them in a somewhat more calm manner. Whereas in the manga or in the anime, they have this scene play out in a, in the dark tent and. Isa is actually outside, sort of eavesdropping on them, and then when the defeat happens, she gets thrown or she thrusts herself into the tent in in you know because she's startled. And then also the scene in the manga actually just takes place outside the tent, not within it, which is another change. And then there's a scene where when Chopper dives in to try and save Gunfall after he falls into the moat. We see from his point of view of him diving into the water and just sort of thinking to himself he needs to save Gunfall, but obviously because he's a Devil's Fruit user, he sort of loses consciousness. And then finally, there's also the scene where after they defeat Satori, the you know Luffy trio get back onto the Karasumaru. That scene is also extended as we get an extra bit where Luffy also imitates Zoro, and then you have him also imitating Sanji. And that second part is the part that gets added. Where they they the Zoro part is in the manga. However, you see Luffy also impersonating Sanji doing the love ordeal part, and,、uh, and then you see Sanji getting annoyed and beating them up, and then comically they're all like swollen faced again、um, because he's pissed that they're not taking the situation seriously. 
But in the manga, this is just a small panel showing Sanji getting annoyed at Luffy doing the Zoro impression. So all that stuff after the Zoro impression is added in to sort of pad the time out. But I'm glad they kept it in because I love seeing Luffy doing the, the Sanji impression. But yeah, that about does it for all the differences. Let's get into my thoughts on the episode. So before returning to the cliffhanger from the last episode with Chopper, we get a brief but very important scene with an update on what happened with Gunfall and Konis. And where they are, along with Pagaya, have fled to Gunfall's sanctuary, his home slash farm, where he makes mention of the fact that they are safe because they're out of the range of NL's mantra, which is interesting to note that it's not infinite, which is our first indication that NL may not be as, you know, this all-powerful god he claims to be, because if he was, why would there be a limit to what he can do and see? Kind of showing us that maybe this guy is just a very powerful, normal person who's fooled people into believing that he's a god. And here we also, again, get to see what kind of character Gunfall is as he just offers to save and house Konis and Pagaya as a service for free yet again. And he's also curious to know if Angel Isle is doing well, which goes to reinforce that he is, you know, a very benevolent and caring ruler. And we see that Konis wanted him back really badly because, yeah, he was a good ruler to all of them in Skypea. I think the best part about this scene, though, is when Gunfall explains to Konis and Pagaya about pirates from the Blue Sea and how they're labeled as criminals down on Earth. As shocked as the two are to find this out, Gunfall points out that they're also now labeled criminals as well, but does that make them a bad person? And the answer is obviously no. And these next few scenes are really poignant, not just for One Piece, but for, you know, the world and society in general, and it really makes you think. He talks about how society is what labels things as right and wrong, and how anyone that doesn't fall into that is deemed to be in the wrong. This is thematically very relevant to the overall in-universe story of One Piece, As we've seen before, many of those pirates deemed to be criminals do good things, and the people who are supposed to be good do bad things, aka the marines. And this idea that those in power get to determine what's right and what's wrong can at times not be the correct way of seeing things. This idea that those who go against the grain of what's deemed acceptable in society are labeled as criminals is a very real thing in real human history, and even in our lives right now. Never has this been more evident than over the last few years. Just in the United States alone, we've had things like slavery, and once that was abolished, we've had segregation laws, and all those things were considered to be lawful at one point and acceptable by society. And anyone who dared to defy that was branded a criminal. And sometimes in order to do the right thing, you have to break those laws when those laws are unjust. We've seen that time and time again throughout history and to this day, people protesting and breaking laws to show society that just because it's a law and that's the way things have always been done doesn't mean it's the right thing. Anyways, all this to say, it's very important to always think critically about what's going on around you and, and really analyze each situation for what it is instead of just jumping to conclusions based on vague labels, which is what this scene is really trying to tell not only the characters in the story, but us as the viewer and reader as well. And I love this speech from Gunfall, and more people should really heed his words here. Because while most laws are good and they should be followed and they're in place for a good reason, there are some laws that are just not right and they should be looked at critically, you know, from case to case and be broken and fought against when they are really wrong or unjust. Anyways, long tangent aside, we get another interesting story from Gunfall about how he said he was friends with a pirate when he was the god of Skypea 20 years ago, 
And I won't spoil it for those that haven't figured it out, but most of most of you probably know who he was talking about immediately based on how he describes this person as a big-hearted and pleasant person. We also get some exposition and learn the overall state of politics in Skypea as well. We learn that the guerrilla people we met are called Shandians and have been at war with Skypeans for over several hundred years. And Gonfal was in the process of trying to broker a peace between them until NL came along and ruined it all. I love Gunfall's warm positivity here, though. His faith that when they hear the singing of the island, which we can pretty much surmise is the golden bell that Cricket was talking about, that they will all be together and united in peace again. That's when Pierre hears the whistle from Chopper, and I love that you can see the image of Chopper's terrified look back reverberate through the air from the last episode. And I'm also glad that we got an explanation as to how Gunfall hears the whistle, because... When he originally gave it to them, I wondered how the hell does he hear this thing from wherever? I mean, does he have the same mantra ability as as NL? And I thought, hmm, that's weird. But it's actually Pierre that hears it, which isn't that clear of an explanation because how does Pierre hear it? Like, do birds and horses have extra good hearing? But it works, I guess. But with that, we turn our attention back to Chopper facing down Shura, and he is completely outmatched here as Shura also possesses the mantra ability of being able to anticipate the actions of his opponents, but for Chopper, it's less about fighting Shura and more about survival and protecting the Mary. There's just something so emotional about how desperate Chopper is to protect the Mary. Being the youngest member of the crew, he still looks up to the other members, especially Zoro, and he took Zoro's request to protect the ship to heart, and it's really touching and also really heartbreaking to see Chopper so desperately here, seeing the Mary take so much damage. However, among this, there's one funny moment of this fight is when Shura explains that he's there because they broke the rules of the game by leaving the altar. And Chopper's calm response of, hey, I see. But then it slowly dawns on him what that actually means and his shock reaction that it was all Zoro's fault. (laughs) This moment is done so perfectly. I love that, yeah, I love Oda using Chopper's sort of animal appearance to give him, like, these ridiculous faces, and they're so funny. However, one thing that's not done very well, and one thing I hate here, and you start to see the poor pacing and the elongation of episodes creep slowly into the series. Like, right in between the Chopper and Shura fight, we get this random scene of Dami again being attacked by a cloud shark, and Robin and Zoro saving her. This scene is totally pointless as we've already seen a scene very similar to this and it just kills the emotional momentum of the Chopper and Shura fight. But luckily it's pretty short and we do get back to the Chopper-Shura fight. And just when Chopper is at a critical moment, Gunfall finally arrives just in the nick of time and this aerial battle between the two spear-wielding bird riders is pretty freaking awesome. Gunfall then gets around him and launches a palm attack similar to Satori's impact on Shura but has a slightly different sound effect which is the key blast from Dragon Ball. And uh, it's also interesting that Gunfall has some way of getting around Shura's mantra, and he can't seem to predict his moves and even catches him completely by surprise. Chopper's is pretty funny during this entire part of the fight as he's just completely fanboying over Gunfall, <laughs> which I don't blame him. Like, Gunfall is freaking awesome. I, yeah, I really love him, and obviously, you know, all know that. In the next scene, we finally get the proper introduction of the guerrilla warriors from earlier, aka the Shandians. Not only that, but we learn that the one that attacked the Straw Hats at the very beginning is called Wiper, and he's now without a mask on, and their design and culture seems to be pretty heavily inspired by Native Americans of North America. 
And similarly, the theme of natives versus a more Western type of society, both warring over land, is also very apparent. And they clearly are not on friendly terms with Gumfall. But Lucky seems to point out that Gumfall is not an actual enemy based on his actions in the past, which backs that up because Gumfall was the one trying to work out a peaceful deal between the two societies. Now, this whole sort of thematic level between the the Shandians and the Skypians as in reference to, you know, Native Americans versus coloniz- you know, colonizers and, and whatnot. I don't know if there's any more of a deeper meaning between this sort of thematic connection or if it's just more sort of a basis for how Oda decided to sort of form the Skypia-Shandian relationship and just use the sort of the imagery between the between the two. I don't quite know if he's trying to sort of say anything about that particular situation because I can't really say like see much that's going on. So I don't know if there's anything more beyond that sort of base level thematic similarities. But for all I know, someone way smarter than me probably has figured out something what you know what this actually is trying to say but i am not one of those smart people though unfortunately but yeah gunfall puts up a good fight but he eventually gets trapped by shoot a string ordeal it seems at some point he's strewn about all these invisible strings all over the battlefield and, and eventually he and pierre get caught up in them leaving them open for a devastating attack Gunfall is stabbed and falls into the water and it seems like gunfall might be done pierre is also stabbed and is dropped into the water as well then Chopper then musters the courage to jump in the water to save him, even though he can't swim, which is something we've seen Chopper do quite often. And most of the time it's for comedic effect. But this time, you know, I think it is sort of his, the doctor side of him and his sense of duty to save people that sort of takes over each time he does this. And although this time it's not played for laughs, like it is a very admirable quality that Chopper Knowing that he's probably going to die, he still doesn't want to just sit there and watch someone die. In addition to earlier, Shura notices this jump Chopper jumping in and remarks how he recognizes that Chopper is its own Devil Fruit user, which is interesting as even in the sky they are aware of Devil Fruits, even though we have yet to see any. It begs the question how Devil Fruits get up to the sky, you know, or do they originate up in the sky islands and fall to the to the sea? And maybe that's why they're so rare down on Earth. Or maybe by virtue, only people with devil fruits are usually the ones powerful enough to even make it to the Sky Islands. Therefore, they they know of devil fruits from past visitors from the Blue Sea. It's certainly an interesting thing to think about because we begin to learn more about devil fruits later on in this arc, as, as we'll talk about in the next episode as well. But yeah, it does make you wonder how they know so much about devil fruits despite we haven't seen a single Devil Fruit or Devil Fruit user here in Skypea. We get a short scene where we catch up with Zoro and company, and this is actually one of the few canon scenes with them so far where Robin remarks on how there's a weird imbalance of nature and civilization and observes how this well that was built in a place where it was not expecting the trees to grow this large. And along with Nami high up in the tree, which I have no idea how she got up there because the way the camera pans up to it Seems like she's somehow climbed over like 100 plus feet in the air. <laughs> and But she s- sees something in, in the distance that surprises her about the nature of the island. Now, I'm not going to speculate because I already know what this means. But it is, it is interesting with all the clues that are strewn about so far to give you the sense that something is up with this island and the fact that it doesn't really belong here. We then finally get back to the Satori fight after he's now unleashed his ball dragon. <laughs> 
and Luffy and all Usopp are struggling with the Karasumaru floating further and further away to an almost unreachable point. Although something interesting happens as Luffy is being chased by the ball dragon, he decides to climb a tree to escape, but he jumps and lands on a rope that controls the dragon, which catches Satori by surprise. And then when Luffy cuts the rope again, Satori can't read that he wouldn't let go of the dragon when pulled. And I think this is because these two actions aren't things Luffy actually actively decided to do at the moment. And they just kind of like did them on instinct without thinking. So now we know kind of there is a way to beat Mantra as you just have to act on instinct or react quickly. And also Satori's dialogue about needing to train it more and that he lost concentration of it also indicates that it is a skill and not a devil fruit ability or anything. So it can also be beaten by messing with the user's head and throwing the concentration off. Which will be interesting to see how this gets used in future fights with the other priests and maybe even Enel. After almost getting both of them killed in the ball dragon explosions, Luffy manages to sneak his way onto Satori's back and they finally have him trapped. So yeah, I mean, reading someone's actions does you no good if you can't dodge them. And just then, we get the surprise reveal of Sanji having regained his consciousness floating around on a ball ominously like Satori in the beginning of the fight and claiming now that he's in the love ordeal as he lights his cigarette showing he's serious now. And we get an awesome and epic Sanji moment here. This scene is too satisfying with how annoying Satori has been this entire time. Sanji unleashes a a new awesome finisher as he launches into the air with his jazz theme blaring, then starts spinning like crazy, landing a devastating dropkick on Satori's head, the Konkase. This honestly should have killed Satori. The amount of force this kick appears to have, it is insane and I love it. It's, it's handled really well in both the manga and the anime too, which is incredibly satisfying. I think this is also one of my favorite Sanji finishers. This one, for some reason, always sticks with me. Like I, and, I, and I always love it when they bring the Konkase back in future episodes. Even though he doesn't do this move very often, there's just something about it that's just really cool. How he just sort of starts spinning end over end and then just lands. It just seems like it has so much force force like it's one of his more devastating finishers i feel like and it's just awesome to watch every time from here we start episode 164 with the shandians preparing to attack as they get word of gunfall entering the upper yard but the real interesting point here is that the little girl isa can also use mantra but in almost the same way nl can in that she can sense or hear voices throughout the entire island she then instantly learns of the fall of gunfall and satori at the same time Learning of this, Wiper and the Shandians see this as an opportunity to finally attack the remaining priests now that there are only three of them guarding NL. We catch up with Chopper as he, Gonfall, and Pierre have somehow miraculously been saved from drowning. Although it's left obscured as to who saved them, based on their silhouette and the cry, it's pretty obvious it was a south bird, but this south bird is massive for some reason. It's like almost 20 times bigger than the one that we had when they, go, when they went up the knock-up stream. Oh, and in between all of this, we're treated to a couple more of Luffy's hilarious impressions of his crew. This time we get to see him impersonate Zoro. <laughs> and then we get another funny as hell impression of Sanji. The, this is a love ordeal. Or, this one might be even funnier than the, did you eat the meat one from, from the Alabasta. <laughs> Either way, I freaking love all of Luffy's impressions. 
And speaking of meat, getting back to the real meat of this episode and the big reveal as we return to Nami and company, they make it to the other coast of the upper yard and see something incredibly familiar and shocking. It's the other half of Cricket's house, which now begins to explain so many oddities of the upper yard and it turns out that the upper yard was the other half of Jaya that was just thrust up into the air, most likely due to the knock-up stream. And I can't tell you how spine-tinglingly goosebump-inducing this reveal was when I first read it. Not only does it begin to explain so much, but it's just one more step to proving that Nolan and Cricket were right and that those romantic stories were actually true. I mean, this is some incredibly exciting developments in the story. Uh, you know, as, as it's so fun to piece these things together along with the characters, I mean, this is the stuff of peak romanticism in storytelling. I mean, it's so cool. We now have some definitive proof that Bellamy was so wrong and that dreaming is where it's at as this begins to sort of start to culminate so much of all these sort of legends and, and, and things. And so, yeah, there these are some pretty incredible revelations and all the stories and the legends seem to be coming together to prove that everything is real and that the gold is up in the sky. But what's more exciting is sort of the history and, and the mystery of what happened for this to even be the case. And I, for one, can't wait to talk about the rest of this in the coming episodes. But yeah, if you enjoyed this, please send me a like or comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Also check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want updates of when I post new episodes or see some pictures of my manga collection. You can check those out as well. And you can stay tuned for a very short spoiler section. There's only really one topic I wanted to talk about. But if not, and you wanted to stay away from spoilers, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen. And I hope to see you on the next episode. See ya! Alright, so spoiler section. There is one really short thing I wanted to mention, and this is probably only going to take like a few minutes. But the pirate friend that Gumfall was talking about, we all know now, is Roger. And it's interesting that that they include here that Goldie Roger made it to the Sky Island. And we also learn way down the line when we get to the Wano arc and we see Odin's flashback that not only... Did they make it? But they went up there the same way that Luffy and them did, using the knock-up stream, meeting Gunfall, and then also the fact that the uh, inscription written on the Poneglyph was written by Odin, because it's it it was quite a mystery here. Even at the end of the Skypea arc, Robin was also wondering that did Roger know how to write the ancient language written on the Poneglyph? But it turns out no, he didn't. He had Odin write it. And yeah, this whole, all this sort of come, coming together. And it's interesting, like, this is so early compared to when, you know, Oda actually revealed how Roger wrote that inscription on there and sort of indicated that, yes, this was one of the stops to getting to Left Tail. And it, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I don't know if he had the whole Odin story and the whole Wano thing just right from the get-go. I'm starting to think, though, that he did have Wano planned out fairly early on. I mean, it can't be a coincidence that he had Zoro's master, you know, be from the Shimotsuki tribe. And then we have all these things sort of strewn about with Skypiea. Then we get to Thriller Bark with uh, Ryuma. And that's where we get our first mention of Wano. And just sort of 
all of these little clues being strewn about throughout the entire series, I honestly do think he had this sort of the, at least the outline of the story of Odin and Wano planned out from from even here, like freaking 800 episodes earlier, which is mind-boggling to say the least. But yeah, it is interesting. Anyways, that's kind of all I wanted to point out here. But yeah, thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.